I'm talking to Erik Pura here from Kappa Health. They're one of the pioneers of functional mushrooms. I don't want to use the term medicinal mushrooms because that's a bit of a red herring, at least like in marketing terms. Medicinal can only be applied on products that are, have medicine status, but I like to use functional mushroom because functionally they do provide actionable and useful features and benefits that are immediately available to anyone looking for immunity, productivity, focus, attention, just general health and well-being, but also altered states. That could be like one, one way to think about this. Plants, mushrooms are some of trees are some of the top chemists on this planet, producing extremely complex compounds. And many of the drugs in modern medicine actually have come from mushrooms or fungi or molds or any of these, anything from penicillin to potential new treatments coming along for degenerative diseases, etc. So we're going to touch base with a lot of different topics here. Erik Puro is, is one of the top experts on this through his company, but also one of the producers of a lot of the ingredients that different functional mushroom product companies use, and they also have their own product line, the Kappa Mushrooms. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Tamil. Great to be here. Yeah. Kappa is running a farm in Finland, the cleanest air, cleanest nature, cleanest water. So one of the biggest farms of functional medicine mushrooms in the world. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to set up this company. You are American actually originally, but you live in Finland. So is it the age-old story of finding love or did you find the mushrooms first? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I moved here about seven years ago and you know, it was because of my wife at the time and she was Finnish. And actually my great-grandfather comes from Finland. So my last name Puro, of course, is a Finnish last name. And I was here actually just visiting her parents and we just had our first child at the moment. So it was like, okay, your grandkids now, here's your child, your grandkid. And I went to, at the time I was, I just bought a piece of land in Kentucky. It was about 200, no, about a, what, 60 hectares, roughly. We had three spring-fed waterfalls. We were building a log house. It was in this beautiful community full of permaculture projects, growing our own food, this kind of thing, living in community. And we thought that was it. That's where we're going to settle, raise our kids and everything. So she takes me to Nuxia National Park and I take my shoes off and I start walking into Finnish woods. Some people that are from Finland, it's blueberry bushes, it's moss, it's lakes, it's these inspiring trees, it's moss hanging from the trees. It's this really epic nature. Kalio, this bedrock, cliffs and stuff. And I said, hey, done. We're selling everything and we're moving to Finland. This is, I've never felt more at home in my life than right now. And I'm, I'm usually a pretty rational guy. I'm pretty boring, actually. I'm pretty methodical in the way I make decisions and, and, and move. But this was one of those moments where my eyes were shining super bright. And I had this big emotional moment of just, this is right. And I have to do this. And her coming from Finland said, no, Finland is too small. US is a much better place. People in Finland are a bit backwards. Maybe they're not going to be so open. And maybe they're a bit grumpy. And, and I said, no, come on, we give it a shot. Let's go do it. And we moved here about three months later. We moved very fast, sold everything. And got here, basically set up a life. And I think we had a fantastic welcoming from Finnish people and the Finnish culture and just kept, I fall in love deeper and deeper every single year. I think I, I know this country and then I go sailing in the archipelago and oh my God, there's also the archipelago. Everywhere you go somehow to this country just amazes me with its beauty. Mm. Grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence, but I guess it was greener on, in Finland for you. <laughs> my feet liked it a lot, let's say. Yeah, it's absolutely, the nature is amazing. It's it's incredible. And in very few capital cities, can you like go like uh, from the capital, like 20, 30 minutes out and you are absolutely in the middle of nowhere where there's no one 
no human. I go very often to hike and camp also in Nuuksio, and it's one of my favorite spots also to pick some mushrooms. And the nature is clean, so you don't have that much of worry about heavy metals or any of that. So I've, I've been actually growing up gathering, identifying mushrooms, eating them. A lot of the typical ones that people do collect, like trumpets or chanterelles or even bullet mushrooms, but also a lot of more, I would say, unknown or esoteric ones as well. And one of my co-authors of the Biker's Handbook, the nutrition specialist is Jaakko Halmetto, and he's been a pioneer on superfoods in Finland. He's now a product manager or designer for food in one of the biggest superfood companies in Finland. And he wrote uh, a book on chaga mushrooms already yeah, a long time ago, like probably 15 years ago, something like this. And he translated a lot of Russian literature and texts on it. It's something that has been part of our culture also. Chaga is a polypore mushroom that grows on birch trees. And it has a lot of interesting medicinal properties in terms of its antiviral, antibacterial, anti-cancer properties. But one of the reasons why superfood people were interested in it was because of its auric value. So it has 10 times more antioxidants than regular, like the next best food, which is usually coffee or chocolate or blueberries or bilberries, which is the badass version that grows in Finland. So he got very excited about this particular mushroom, became an expert on it, and in Finland, it has been used as a replacement, also in Siberia, as a replacement to black tea, because you didn't have like access to black tea. It doesn't really grow in Finland. So if you couldn't import it, it was basically a luxury item. So chaga tea was like the local best alternative. So it's been, it has traditional use, it's been consumed. But still today, very few people actually drink it or know it even. So there's like this kind of loss of information and knowledge of the old traditions, which is now being revived by the commercialization of uh, nutritional products. And medicine mushrooms are, or functional mushrooms are now everywhere. And it's not just chaga, it's also reishi, cordyceps, lion's mane are the top four mushrooms that are commercially available now to consumers and they know it. Uh, and not just as a replacement to tea or coffee, but even as an additive to, to those. So there's like coffee products that have some mushrooms in it and there is blends and like all that. But I, I basically trace it like this whole trend into superfood trend that really started in uh, early 2000s or something like this. Yeah, that's the history, how I got into it, because I got to know Jaakko and his book. And I got very excited about him talking about this mushroom. And I started consuming it. And I have now consumed chaga mushrooms, I would say every single day. I'm not joking. Every single day, because I put it in my coffee. It's really like a base thing. Using it as teas, tinctures, powders, mainly extracts for since 2009 or something like this. That's already like 15 years of mushrooms. And I'm still alive. I'm actually healthier than ever. And one of the key reasons for lack of sickness and seasonal flu and also general health and being, I do attribute to my regular use of mushrooms. It might be an anecdote, but at least for me, it works. Has not been at least detrimental to my health to, to drink this mushroom. So how about you? What was the year when you got into mushrooms? Mm, yeah, I think I've been, I was growing mushrooms actually in Kentucky before I moved to Finland. So I actually had a one meter log oak trees. I would cut down an oak tree. I'd cut it into one meter sections with my chainsaw and I would inoculate it with different fungi. And I was just, it was a side product. It was a hobby. And I was just fascinated by how these fungi grow. Everybody that I was with in this permaculture community was out. Everybody was growing nut trees and fruit trees and planting forest gardens and working with plants. 
And I was like, I'm never going to learn as much as these guys. They're like years ahead of me. No one's doing fungi. Let's start figuring that out. And I found a weird company in Minnesota that I could buy the strains from. And I just got got my hands dirty and just started working with fungi. And I, I became more and more fascinated. And everything that I read about it, it just felt like no one knows anything, right? It just feels like we there's a lot of be- not knowledge about the benefits, but we don't understand the mechanisms. We don't understand their biology. Like Chaga, we still don't understand their biology at all. That it's just all these different things that, that are so mysterious. And I think I, I'm addicted as an entrepreneur to solving problems. And this just seemed like a big problem that I could devote my life to. When I came to Finland, I was fortunate enough to meet some mycologists because they have a more technical background than myself. And we were able to start the company and get things going. Yeah. Chaga muscle has like thousands of compounds. We still don't know most of them. Yeah. Of course, there's some things that we do know, like polysaccharides and like beta-glucans and whatnot, like in these mushrooms and some active ingredients like in lion's mane and cordyceps. Cordyceps, you have cordyceps in A. In lion's mane, you have aids. So these are the things that we do attribute to very specific clinical, I would say, features. So maybe we can run down into those like a little bit. Yeah. So our company, we when we started working, we were looking at what are the main quality markers that our, the industry is looking at. And pretty much everything at that time is either polysaccharides or beta-glucans. And beta-glucans is a subsection of polysaccharides. Within polysaccharides, you have alpha-glucans and beta-glucans. And alpha-glucans are basically starch, not so medicinally interesting. So beta-glucans, I'd say, are the really interesting quality marker. At the time, there was a company out of Ireland that developed an assay that you can basically test for fungal beta-glucans so we could start to test products and standardize to them. So our company has been doing that for some years already. We started working with uh, your community and we launched our products back in 2019 at the Biohacking Summit in Helsinki, which was fantastic event. It blew my mind. We really realized, okay, these people, these biohackers, these guys, these guys are not buying reishi for beta-glucans or immune support. They're buying reishi for sleep support, for the rest and digest and relaxation. So we started to realize, okay, lion's mane, not for immune support, right? Beta-glucans. It's around cognition performance, brain performance, unlocking that potential. Cordycepine for energy. So we said, okay, so we said, oh my God, there's these, okay, there's these uses, use cases that this, this group is really saying, hey, this is really what we need to pay attention to. And we said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. So we started a project to figure out how to standardize the products to those different secondary metabolites, we call them. So cordycepine and cordyceps or hericinones and lion's mane, butylinic acid and chaga, which is the main antioxidant there. And we contacted a lot of labs globally and we sent samples off to get tested. And we got some results that were for us very surprising. We were getting results like our lion's mane sample, which we only use, let's say fruiting bodies, which are the mushroom part. We were getting a compound back for high levels of ericinones. And ericinone is a, it also crosses the blood-brain barrier and produces NGF, but it's only found in the pure mycelium. NGF is neural growth factor, so it improves neural growth factors in the brain. So potential therapeutic use for neurodegenerative issues or nervous system issues, but also for cognitive performance, why people are interested in lion's man. Just to add that detail. Yeah, that's good. So we got the results back and it said we had pretty high levels of ericinones in our product. And we said, oh my God, this is like a world news. I, I sit on the executive committee for the International Medicinal Mushroom Society. So I'm looking at any new publication that's coming out from research that goes through our committee, if it's going to be at our Congress. And and, I, and pretty much the consensus was ericinones are in the fruiting body, aranaceans are in the mycelium. How can this lab be saying that the ericinones are in our product? So we asked them, hey, what is the assay that you're using? What's the standard that you're using to compare it against. So when they do these tests, they have to have a pure standard of a compound that then they use as a reference material to go, 
okay, your graph looks like this one. So you have this much levels of this compound, right? So we said, hey, just tell us what the standard is and where did you get it? And we found out that they were using a compound from reishi, a triterpene compound from reishi to judge the ericinone and hericinone levels of lion's mane. So it's like using a standard for apples to test something in like rose root, yeah, just because they're plants and it's a secondary metabolite. They're totally different compounds. So we immediately realized, okay, the entire industry, the foundation for these secondary metabolite tests in the entire industry is actually these accredited laboratories, but they're not AOAC approved or internationally approved methodology for testing these secondary metabolites. So we said, okay, if we're going to standardize this, we need to so take a step back and take the responsibility ourselves. As we're a company that's doing the production of this material and the extraction in-house, and we're selling the ingredients to over, let's say, 110 brands just in Europe alone, it's really our responsibility to do that. So we set up our own laboratory with the university here in Finland. And for the last 12 months, have been basically sending lots of batches and buying those standards from different professors who, had, who found these different compounds and developing our own assays to get international accreditation for. So we can go to market and be the first company to really have a really strong position on we know the levels of these secondary metabolites. So we're really excited about that, actually. It's been a big project that's been in the dark for a long time. But within the next few months, we'll be releasing all that data. So if I add what this means is many companies on the market, they are not mentioning the amount of active secondary metabolites, but they talk about standardization against beta-glucans, like 10%, 15%, whatever is usually in the packaging. So if you're lucky, there is active ingredients also, but not necessarily because the standardization is on beta-glucans. Any mention on secondary metabolites is unreliable. So you're basically actually directly looking into the th- reason why someone is having a mushroom product. And many of these products are quite expensive. Like you, you spend spend like uh, a lot of euros to buy this so you better buy something that actually works so if you're taking lion's mane for brain function like you better have the active ingredients that do support that and if you want beta glucans you can also like just buy some oats or something like this so beta glucans are also present in other food products and it's great for gut health right so beta glucans do stimulate the immune system i think the production of macrophages so which are cell eaters which is amazing from an immune system standpoint, but if you want these like other compounds that are potentially the reason why you're having these mushrooms, then you better get the right product. And a lot of products also like, maybe because it's more cost-effective, if you take lion's mane, you mentioned fruiting bodies, they might use mycelium because you don't need to wait for the fruiting body. You can just process the whole like mycelium like mass. And it's impossible to reliably separate the growing medium from the myceliums, they just like process the growing medium also. So potentially you're just getting sawdust, right? Uh, yeah, basically. So what is your take on that? It's mainly a North American issue. But yeah, it's it, it. thankfully in the European Union, there's some regulation against, let's say, what's called mycelium on grain or powdered products that are actually, let's say, 99% the grain. In the US, it's a much more difficult issue. If you go to food, if you go to like Whole Foods, there's uh, three brands that sell there. One of them is Fungi Perfecti that's owned by Paul Stamets, who's a fairly famous mycologist. Even he sells mycelium on grain. So his products are over 95% just grain. Grain, great, sure, eat it, whatever. It's sugar, maybe not so healthy for you, but it's maybe not a food supplement. So I think that it's going to come to Europe. There's going to be companies who file for the food safety reports and get that figured out. But I think that it's it's not an issue yet. But I think you have to be really careful. And I think that as we were talking before we started recording, this trend is it's booming right now. And you, anytime you're going to see a big boom like this, the market's going to be ahead of regulation. The market's going to be ahead of the laboratories. 
So all this stuff has to catch up. Obviously, our company is here to stay for the next 100, 200 years. We have great investors on board. No one's forcing us to sell. We, we didn't take any VC money, thankfully. Mainly, we're focused on big long-term partnerships. So for us, we want to just improve the quality of the metrics that we use to design everything so that we can really be proving that through transparency that everything's efficacious. Yeah, you were launching your first product, which actually was more like of forestry and I guess more like agricultural side that you were running at that time, yeah. pro-agri, and, and then moving into these consumer products. And it, that was five years ago. And we have the 10-year anniversary of Biker Summit next year, 2024, in Helsinki, Finland. Congratulations, by the way. That's a fantastic achievement to do anything for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So for 10 years, I've seen like trends coming and going. Yeah. So yeah, these medicine mushrooms, functional mushrooms have been around for 10 years, like as long as I remember, those have been available in the market, in parking circles, but they really picked up in interest in 2000s, sorry, 2020s, I would say like 2019 already some, but now there's a lot of product companies around it. There's a lot of influencer and consumer marketing around consumption of mushroom products. I, I guess like part of the reason why it became so trendy is because the idea of having mushrooms is like, whoa, like I'm going to get psychedelic effect or something. But it required a good amount of education that a mushroom tea is not like you're like getting trip out of it, like you're actually getting health benefits. But still, like a lot of people, they just get like super excited because they think they're getting a drug. So they might confuse that with magic mushrooms. And even in the marketing of these functional mushroom products like Chagan Reishi and Lion's Man, there is mentioning of like magic. Everyday magic. That's Four Sigmatic's tagline. Also, Mighty Fungi, like Estonian company. And then there's, I've seen a lot of these magic mushroom tea companies. So it's being used in the marketing because of the esoteric mystery that is around Soma, right? Like the mythical brew that was supposedly a mushroom that gave like these altered states and powers and access to mystical realms and of the whole mushroom thing in terms of psychedelic mushrooms, uh, namely psilocybin mushrooms, was pretty much popularized by Gordon Wasson, who went to Mexico and had mushrooms with Maria Sabina and published that in a major American newspaper, which was kind of out of ordinary because it was almost like a regular like business person going to Mexico and drinking mushrooms and like discovering this thing and bringing it back to America. And it became a big thing. Of course, during the time when the hippie culture and the hippie movement was like growing up, taking LSD and mushrooms and like all of these things. So eventually getting psilocybin banned as a Schedule A drug, but now it's coming back. So the legalization is spreading across States in US, it's in Canada. When we did in 2018, we did Bucker Summit in Toronto in Canada. Mushrooms were already like, there was a course at the University of Toronto on how to grow your own mushrooms, like magic mushrooms. People were using those and now there's like the whole therapy use and there's all these therapy centers popping up left and right and research coming out. The amount of money and funding that has gone into from the early 90s, 2000s onwards into studying uh, classical psychedelics and their potential therapeutic use. It's like a new gold rush now. There's venture funds that focus on funding research and there's big breakthroughs coming through. And mainly the legal ones are the ones that are studied most or which are legal somewhere like in the Netherlands, like mushrooms have existed for a long time. And like in some countries, like it's been part of the culture, so it's like not been banned. 
but most of most in US it's been like ketamine because that has been therapeutically possible and now increasingly psilocybin mushrooms as well. How do you see like this connection between like functional mushrooms and psychedelic mushrooms in general? I think that there's a lot of, yeah, it's a very good question. I think there's a lot of connections there from different angles. There's the VC angle, venture capital angle, there's the commercial angle, but then there's also, like you said, this, why the trend is happening. Is it this? I think when you look at the, the trend, people are getting more excited about uh, functional mushroom ingredients and functional mushrooms. We see it in cosmetics and pet food. It's all over the place now. Food and Bev, uh, supplements, nutraceuticals. And we also sell to uh, doctors in Spain. Our our products are sold in pharmacies and doctors are prescribing them, using them in in, in clinician settings. So basically all over the place, I think people see the power of mushrooms. If you ever tried psychedelics, you know how powerful mushrooms are. So I think that idea is just ingrained that, ooh, I have high expectations for this product. I think it actually might do what it says it does because I've had my mind blown by mushrooms already. And then you try reishi. Okay, you get better sleep. It's at the, the biohacking summit. We, we were there in Amsterdam and we would give people, the people would buy the product on the night before. I said, hey, come tomorrow, show me your hour ring data. If you got lower deep sleep, I said, I give you your money back. And, and people would happily come and go, oh my God, I got a 10, 20%, 30% boost in my deep sleep normally. I said, great, that's fantastic. And okay, that's not a mind altering ego-shattering, life-changing experience that you can rid alcohol or something, depression in your life. But okay, you're going to be having a better day today. You're going to have a better day tomorrow. Let, let's talk about these kind of uses. Reishi for sleep, but it, it's potentially also a hangover cure. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's some interesting research we just learned about a year ago. The first human clinical was published about using reishi with alcohol to intake. So we know that when you drink alcohol, your heart starts to race. It starts to beat faster. Probably all of us have experienced lying in bed, just heart pounding, or you wake up warm and hot, and it's just horrific for your sleep. So the hangover is pretty bad. I think that they were looking at, okay, ratio is activating parasympathetic nervous system. It's lowering your heart rate. It's doing actually all this kind of anti-alcohol stuff. So let's give two a control group alcohol with no added reishi and a control group with added alcohol and reishi. And what we could see is that the, the heart rate spike would happen with both groups and then it would slowly go down if you drank just alcohol. But if you took it with reishi, it would go spike, but it would come down to normal baseline within just a few hours. So in terms of being able to operate in a social function, operate at a customer dinner, operate at an investor dinner, whatever you have to do, have a little couple glasses of wine, but still have a good night's sleep. I think ratio is a powerful ally. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Let's also touch base with cordyceps that has cordyceps in and yeah. that is related to caffeine and adenosine specifically. So pretty exciting. We've been working with this FC Barcelona and Real Madrid football teams. We also have recently signed a deal to bring out 10 Champions League football athletes to work with us. And we've been testing cordyceps in these kind of environments on sports performance effectively. Is it actually working? What is it doing? Because we know that there's a really interesting active compound in cordyceps called cordycepine. And cordycepine crosses the blood-brain barrier. It suppresses melatonin production, which itself is also a little bit scary if you take it too late at day, but could be great if you want to party all night. But I think that the most interesting thing with cordyceps is that we've been seeing companies like Onnit in the US, a handful of really good, I would say, supplement brands have funded their own human clinical trials around cordyceps in the US. And they've seen that it increases stuff like VO2 max. So if you're an endurance athlete, usually you fail because your muscles don't get oxygen, right? So if you can vasodilate, increase the amount of you know lung capacity, increase the amount of blood capacity to carry oxygen, basically you're going to 
be performing better and faster and longer. So we said, okay, footballers are probably the people to test this with. They're just running all the time. And they've seen, and these are groups that have trainers. They know what they eat. They know when these guys poop and, and they know if they're getting enough sleep at night. So they're in these like basically hospital-like settings. So it's been really fantastic uh, groups to work with. Uh, we're seeing personal bests. We're seeing performance increases. We're seeing everything across the board with cordyceps. And the nice thing is it's WADA approved. So it doesn't have any doping effects. It's not anti-doping or any of those kind of issues for athletes. And for Olympic athletes, of course, WADA approval is what they use as well. So we've been able to really help a lot of these top performing athletes perform just a little bit better. And I would say that it's a fantastic fungi. I'll, of course, if you're a top performing athlete, you want to always perform better. But also if you're just having depression, it's a bit hard to get going in the morning, need some extra energy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm having actually coffee with cordyceps right now. So I'm definitely a user. One thing that I want to ask you is that um in Europe, not all variants of cordyceps are allowed. Like it's a novel food partly. And I think it's sinensis that is or is it militaris? So there's cordyceps militaris and sinensis. Like which one is now the commercial? Yeah. So cordyceps sinensis is is approved for food supplement usage and There's two forms that are approved. There's the fruiting body, and the fruiting body costs 50,000 euros a dried kilo. And you basically the two main exporters of that is uh, Tibet or China, but Tibet or oh, just I just lost it. But the country that's a benevolent dictator in that same region. Anyway, Himalayan mountain countries basically. Nepal. Nepal is one of them as well. Yeah, but there anyway, it's 50,000 euros a dried kilo. It's basically very rare to find. Yak herders are basically on these mountaintops walking around and they find it growing in caterpillars. It's not able to farm it right now. So it's only a wild forage product and it's very expensive. Usually in Europe, I don't think there's any fruiting body products you can find on the market with cordyceps sinensis. So the alternative then is a cordyceps sinensis mycelium that's produced in a pure form. And how you do that is you separate it in a, you can grow mushrooms in liquid culture, which is like a mixture of sugar water, basically or solid state fermentation, which would be grain or sawdust or something. So you can produce pure mycelium, and but we're just not seeing any of the medicinal compounds there. So the main marker would be cordycepine. And there's trace amounts in cordyceps sinensis, but cordyceps militatis is the other species of cordyceps that has just a lot more of cordycepine in it. So it's the one that our company ex- exclusively works with, but it's just unapproved for, for use in, in, in EU. So we sell it in the US market and the UK market to brands there, but we just don't really work with it in Europe so much. But I think one of these days, somebody's going to have to file for the novel food application and just get it done properly. Yeah, I agree. Like it's so much slowing down the food innovation in Europe. Like another one that is available in US is turkey tail, which also grows like freaking everywhere, like on the planet. And I find it all the time also. And that's one thing you can't sell in Europe because of the novel food act that it has not doesn't have like commercial use before year 97 or something like this. Although it's one of the one of the most interesting mushrooms for sure. So there's still like all of that that to process and make a commercial product is another thing from just herbalism of collecting these plants for personal use. Um, j- just to be really clear, also just when we're talking about this subject, turkey tail and cordyceps are two mushrooms that our company produces a lot of. We have uh, products on our shelf. We just don't sell them in Europe, but we can give them away. So basically, we have a rule, and every time I'm on a podcast, I say this again to everybody, is that if you want to DM me on Instagram or DM Kappa Mushroom Brand on Instagram, when you place an order, we'll just put a free bottle in there for you. So we understand that people need this, need these mushrooms, and we have powder, we have tinctures, we have whatever you want. And I think just just mention that you heard this, and it's free. We can give it to you. <laughs> That's a really nice bonus to spread the goodies. Now, let's talk about another mushroom that is one of the most famous mushrooms 
is not like fully understood, and that's Amanita muscaria. It's the fly agaric mushroom, the, the mushroom with the red cap and the white dots, which has been popularized by by, by mass media and like folklore and a lot of that and Christmas candies and like uh, decorations on, on, on pine trees and whatnot. And that is the mushroom that people are thought is like super, super toxic and you should never eat has been war- warning children about not eating, touching those mushrooms, which is partly true because it can cause nausea if not processed properly and, and can have some toxicity effects. But like when cured and processed effectively, it's, it is it is one of those mushrooms that has been connected to shamanic traditions in, in Siberia and here in the north. And it turns out from a scientific standpoint, it's very interesting. It's a GABAergic mushroom, so it slows down the nervous system. It has a relaxa- relaxing effect, and also it improves acetylcholine, which is concentration. Simultaneously, if you take a higher dose, then it gets into this psychedelic effect, which is all, almost delirious. People don't really enjoy that trip usually. It's, it can be a bit nightmarish in some cases, but in slow, more, small amounts, like in terms of microdosing, has shown to be, in some preliminary clinical studies, a promising way to withdraw from benzodiazepine addictions or even alcohol addiction that also affects GABA. So it can be used as a replacement to alcohol withdrawal sim- symptoms, but you should ne- you should never mix those two because that can be life-threatening. You don't want to take them at the same time with alcohol, but as a compound, it's very interesting. And also topical use has been used as a muscle relaxant. And so if you have any kind of pain or anything, there's people who rave about using Amanita as a, as a topical treatment. So that is one thing that has been flying under the radar, is not as studied as many of these other functional mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms, but as an active compound or compounds. And could be potential also for, you mentioned alcohol use like with Reishi, maybe this is a way then to get rid of your alcohol addiction, who knows. But there is actually drug companies that have tried to modify it to create a drug on the mass market or for these very specific uses. So that's one of those mushrooms that grows everywhere in the north. And there, there's a lot of folklore associated with it. Like the funniest story is that um, the story of Santa Claus, which has been pretty much made by Coca-Cola, is actually an adaptation of old stories, shamanic traditions. And Santa Claus also is like Saint Nicholas, like connected to like religious gift-giving priests and all that. But in, in the north, basically, like the story goes that the um, the shamans, they dressed up as uh, in red coat with white stripes. And Santa Claus also has like a red coat and white stripes, just like the mushroom, bringing gifts uh, under the tree, Christmas tree. And the Christmas tree is under which you have the mushrooms growing also, like the Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And when he's intoxicated on the mushrooms, he's flying with the reindeers and that basically the, the thing is that if traditionally you would give the mushrooms to reindeer and their liver would like filter out the toxins and you would drink their piss. So that, then you fly with Rudolph the reindeer um, and figuratively. And because in the winter, your front door might not be accessible, you come down the chimney. So that's how the Santa Claus enters, enters the building to the terrorizing the children or bring gifts if they're being naughty or nice. So there's like a remix of different traditions. Some people have been trying to trace this story and it seems like hardly a made up story as well, but it's a fun story. I think it's more interesting story than the Santa Claus story. <laughs> it's this mushroom story associated with it. 
have you seen like in, in any of the you sitting in the board, like any interesting mushrooms or this mushroom particularly that has been like catching the eye of the scientific community? I think this is a, it's an interesting one, just like psychedelics in general, but I think it's always this regulatory issue from a commercial standpoint. Even with these bigger psychedelic companies publicly traded, you have Thailand Sciences here in Europe, you have their stock price just plummets. I mean, they're just doing nothing like they used to. And I think the market is just going, okay, this is interesting, but when? And when are we going to get this to market? Obviously, there's now companies selling Amanita Muscata under the radar in the US market already. You can go on and find about 10, 20 companies that'll ship to your door. They've found a little bit of a loophole, I think, in the FDA requirements there. But I think that in general, when people find something that's benefiting their life, making a quality of life better, the government's going to have a tough time regulating that. You saw prohibition against alcohol in the US was a pretty much disaster. And the war on drugs, I think, is a pretty much disaster as well. So I think that there will always be this kind of breakthrough moment that will happen. But I think what's really important is to look at that story around the Amrita Muscaria use in Finland and generally pretty much every culture globally. We used to sit down as a community and partake in some ritualistic ceremony that helped us deal with whatever is going on in our life and open up with some traumas that we might have or relationship issues or stresses. And as a community, we would come together to help and support and hold each other up to do that. And I think that ceremony is something that we've lost. And of course, Amanita Muscaria can help you get to that place. There's others, San Pedro, peyote, ayahuasca, other types of mushrooms. There's many things there. But I think in general, just we as a community just need to remember to sit down and support and help each other. And I think in this day and age, a lot of people are nomadic and traveling around a lot and or we're in big cities and we get lost. But I think it's important to find what is your tribe and what is your community and really sit down and imbibe in some sort of ceremony to really support each other. And I think that's, yeah, I guess we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Even Chaga, Reishi, Lion's Mane, all this used to also thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, the traditional use. I think cacao ceremony is a good example of the sacred aspect of cacao that has yeah. spread to the West from Guatemala and elsewhere and connected to the New Age traditions. Actually, one thing to point out, out about cacao ceremonies is that the type of cacao ceremony that people see is actually a hippie New Age version of the original, which is not done in the same kind of way like most cacao ceremonies are. But maybe there could be other ceremonies like chaga mushroom tea ceremonies and whatnot to connect the spirit of that mushroom. Now, with Amanita muscaria, I want to add, before people go out there picking up it, ah, Temu told it's like good alcohol treatment thing that you should, you should know what you're doing. You don't want to mix it with alcohol. You need to know how to process it properly because it has ibotenic acid and ibotenic acid can be very problematic and, and toxic. So you want to get rid of it and you have to cure it properly to, to eliminate that. And of course, there's the muscarin and muskimol conversion that you want to take care of like through the same carboxylation process. But the ibotenic acid is the one that is a bit worrisome in amanita. And of course, then you can also mix up amanita to other amanita mushrooms that do have amatoxins and also phallotoxins that can actually cause the liver failure. And that's like the white... White death. Yeah. As you really need to know, like with just any mushroom, you need to be 150% sure of your identification before you pick it up. Generally speaking, the polypore mushrooms that grow on trees, like they're less likely to be toxic to my understanding, that there is less of a risk involved in polypore mushrooms. But anything growing on the ground, which is seasonal, you have to really know what you're doing if you're going to collect, extract, or, or do anything about these things. So it comes with a little bit of caution right there. There's a lot of interesting properties and opportunities in this space. And 
when it comes to the um, psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, we have discussed this in other podcasts, but just to refresh the memory, psilocybin is a tryptamine. Tryptamines in general are analogs or very similar to the brain neurotransmitter serotonin. So just very small adjustments or differences. She also looks very similar to the active compounds in other psychedelics like DMT and LSD and even mescaline. Structurally speaking, all are affecting the serotonin system and often binding to 5-HT2A receptor in the brain, which exercises its effects primarily. But there is many other targets also that are a bit unknown. We think we know everyone's talking about 5-HT2A, but who knows about TAR1, for example, or or some of the other targets. Also, psychedelics, by the way, they also affect the endocannabinoid system. So they do affect pain reception, and that might be part of the therapeutic reason and use also like uh, this kind of almost like pain dampening effect that they bring along like during the experience that can also have a psychological component. Yeah, I think the main, if you look neurologically what they're doing, it's very clear and very interesting, I think. If, they, if you put people in these NMRI machines, you can find out where blood is flowing in their brain and you can start to say, okay, that's where long-term memory is, that's where short-term memory is, that's where our pain centers are. And it's a very functional tool to understand a little bit about this brain and how it works. And they also put people in these MRI machines and they said, don't do anything at all. Just chill. Don't meditate. Don't do anything. Just don't do anything. And what they found across genders, age group, geographic locations is that we, what we have in that mode is called a default mode network. So there's an area that's lit up that's our default mode network, and it's common across all humans. So we have this we have this center in our brain called the default mode network that is just our default mode. If Tamo asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to say I'm good. Am I good? Actually, fuck, I'm really not good at all, but I just say I'm good when I resp- automatically respond to people. I don't know. Or we have a way of saying hi, that's who we are. Or we have stories we tell ourselves, right? For instance, I tell myself I'm worthy of love. I'm a successful business person. I'm, I get stuff done if I decide to do it. I very positive stories. We also have very negative stories we tell ourselves too. I'm not worthy of love. People don't want me around. I'm not funny, whatever it might be. So I think that pausing that default mode and checking in with yourself every once in a while is a super important practice. And what we know from psychedelics is that when you put people under NMRI machines after they've taken psychedelics is that effectively their default mode, it it just stops. There's no blood flow there anymore. So effectively, neurologically, at a macro level, a big big picture level, it's just suppressing our default mode network. The story you tell yourself, you're able to reflect on for the first time. When I came to Finland, I was able to reflect on American culture. I couldn't do that in America. But because I was out of the system, I was out of the culture, I was out of the way, I was able to compare and contrast and think about that. So I think one of the major therapeutic uses for psychedelics, what we see is trauma support, PTSD support. We see uh, alcoholism, depression, and all these kind of things because you're able to really get to the core of your default mode, your foundation, your ego, what your identity is, and you're able to reflect and then possibly change upon it. And I think it fits that now probably we've done a 10-person trial that has been state-supported first ever last year, and we had fantastic results. So basically people who are long-term clinically depressed, can't hold a job, we're really having a tough life, alcoholism, about seven or eight of those people are holding jobs now, like eight, nine months later. Fantastic. Finnish government got so excited about this, they've now commissioned like a hundred person trial. And one of my good friends, Antti Hoopli, probably as well, is really part of that trial. So it's really exciting to see governments looking at this and going, okay, this actually works. This does something. But I think the challenge that we have is, okay, we can have people have these phenomenal moments. They can leave that. Just like I can leave the biohacker center going, I got a cold plunge every day. I need to start doing my kettlebells again. But how do we actually make that change and institutionalize that into our life? 
And I think that's where you see a lot of new clinical studies coming that it's macro dose of, of psychedelics plus an ongoing dose of uh, lion's mane. Because lion's mane, we've completed as a company our first human clinical trial now, just a couple weeks ago, which is very exciting. We'll be publishing in the next few months. But what we found is that lion's mane is improving nerve growth factor four to eight times. We can see that in rats' brains. We, can, we know that. We know it's increasing neurogeneration. We know it's increasing the number of brain cells that we have. But our clinical trial, we looked at uh, markers around cognitive performance and memory loss. And we were able to make a very conclusive uh, statement after double-blind placebo randomized crossover study that it's helping with that. If you're looking at, you just had this big moment and you just took psychedelic macro dose, you've got all these ideas, you want to do something. How do you formalize that in your brain? Take lion's mane. It's going to help at that time where you need neurogeneration, you need new synapse connections, you need new brain cells. It's a great ally to help strengthen that implementation of whatever those ideas might be. So Yeah, indeed, like the default mode network is highly active on people with uh, depression, anxiety, and even OCD. So this overactivation is, is often associated to these kind of sy- symptoms and like temporarily interrupting that default mode network seems to have a lot of therapeutic benefits for depression and anxiety and OCD. Also anorexia, they found like in new studies, very good results with any kind of like neurotic, compulsive, like repetitive behaviors, including addictions, like there's a huge opportunity here. There was a new study recently published in Neuroscience and Behavioral Review on this default mode network and also the theory of mind network as well. They did that with over 2,000 participants, so it's a pretty significant sample. And the study's main highlights were that the default mode network and theory of mind are both related on how we perceive and understand self and others. So there's this experience of boundary dissolution that you blend into the environment. You realize that the difference between the self and the environment and others, like there is no difference, like we're all one. That's the kind of like almost experience that people have. Then the other thing is- Because you're suppressing your perception of yourself. (laughs) Limiting the signals. And then the other thing is the psychedelic exchange, the self-perception and modulation of social thinking. So there's the social component. This study was the first one investigating social cognition of psychedelics and how they overlap. And they realized that there's like this awareness and social cognition is like empathy and like all of that is modulated through these experiences. And this helps emotional processing of interpersonal and social issues. And so a lot of people, when they have depression, anxiety, a lot of that is actually connected to interpersonal relationships, trauma, interactions with others, family, all of that, like by having this modern dissolution experience and also modulation and change in the way you relate to social situations gets you out of that repetitive loop of the way you look at things. So it gives you a break of being you so you can look at the things from a different angle. Exactly. And now if we think of any kind of world conflicts, let's take what's going on in the Middle East right now. If we gave mushrooms to just calculating how many people there are, like 50 million combined in Palestine, Israel, like combined, I like in terms of how much this would cost, like I, I would put the number based on conversation with my friend, Philip Dussek, like somewhere between 100 to 300 million, we could solve world peace. Like it's, you just put everyone on mushrooms for a while and they realize we all won. Like there's no separation. Why a war, right? You are... In a sense, you are like a cell in a body called humanity, and it's like an overactive immune system that is attacking itself is by attacking your basically friends that are your neighbors. But of course, there's a very deep, very deep psychological, who knows how deep these kind of traumas go, like generational trauma. Yeah. Someone did something to someone like freaking thousand years ago, and it's still going on. But that's the thing that 
is hope for humanity in these times is that there's a compound or like a, an approach that would bring us closer together, increase our empathy, get us out of our materialistic, short-sighted, egoistic needs and would see things from the perspective of the other and help us solve interpersonal problems and trauma. Because there's a lot of stuff we need to release, like still coming from the world wars that we have fought before, like famines and like all kinds of like horrible things humans have done to each other. Yeah, but even just our public school system, just whatever programming we have in our, in our life, I think to solve world peace, you solve yourself. And I think that starts with deprogramming yourself. You're born and we think I'm Temo Arena or I'm Eric Puro and I'm this old and I am a product of everything that I decided. I am in control and that's not the case at all. So many things are put into our default mode or our ego or as a story that we tell ourselves subconsciously or consciously and we're 21 and we don't know what we're doing and we're making bad decisions. And I think that this is, it's so worthwhile to check in with yourself every few years at least. Yeah. It's not even like just this thing that like some hippies do or did, but it's now something that is quite mainstream. So there's a lot of public figures that have come out talking about like how massive change and benefit this has been to their life. Like giving a, a few examples of celebrities, Prince Harry, for example, probably a lot of family trauma right there, right? <laughs> really attributed psychedelics as one of the biggest game changers. If you take even mystics, like you take Deepak Chopra, Deepak Chopra has, has spoken about how his experiments with LSD has had massive, great impacts on his mind. Also, recently there was, in our conference, there was Oli Overton, who is a former SAS commando, Green Barrett from UK, like television shows, all of that. Lifelong trauma, not just related to war, but basically being attacked by a chimp when he was like basically like helpless infant. And like that trauma leading him to his career choice and everything and alcohol addictions, everything. And then mm -hmm. drinking ayahuasca was one of the biggest things for him to transform the way how he, he sees the world. And also there has been, psychedelics have been attributed to creativity. The original developers of computers like Steve Jobs, even Bill Gates has, has recognized these compounds. So there seems to be like now this huge movement of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who are excited about... And this kind of whole conscious movement, of course, connected to Burning Man and a lot of this, this kind of like new renaissance of mind opening and awareness that is coming along. Public podcast in the biking community, you have Tim Ferriss speaks and funds very openly research. He was, although these are like superheroes we follow, he was suicidal, lifelong trauma, like almost killed himself. And psychedelics are one of the key things that he attributes to getting out of his addictive personality coping mechanisms. Yeah, like there, there is so many individuals who have found benefits of, of using this. Yeah, maybe the world leaders need to try out a little bit of psilocybin. Yeah, I think a lot of those people found psychedelics because their pain and suffering was just so high. They didn't have anything else to do. At some point, you have to become enlightened or you kill yourself. But it's, it's strange that our society requires you to get to the breaking point before you find the solution. We used to have this functioning culture and functioning society that you know every few years you come together as a community, you take this, you check in with yourself, you support each other. And we've just lost that. And I think it's one thing to give everybody mushrooms, but it's another thing to change the way we think about society and culture that you know our job here is to pick each other up. If we see people with pain and with suffering, that we pick them up. We go, hey, what's going on? How are you doing right now? How are you feeling? See, you're walking in LA and you see a homeless guy, talk to them. And I think that's just something that we've lost. We've isolated that somehow. Yeah, these have been used traditionally by tribes to for keeping the community together, like the 
Native American church uses it primarily for that reason. It's, it's not for therapy. Of course, it's for interpersonal and social therapy. They use like the cacti, the peyote, and all that. Like they have the talking stick going on, and this is how they keep the community together. And this is the way how it's been used in healing arts in South American traditions, also like in the community to help and heal the community. And so there's that aspect for sure. So that's the therapeutic side. That's the compound side, the benefits. If you take like psilocybin, like there's probably a lot more benefits that are not just related to like depression and anxiety. Those are the things like we, we study the things that we are looking at clinically, people who have cancer and so on, like they're in the end of their life, like how to help them cope with the psychological issues. Of course, that's what we study. Yeah. But there is like growing number of people who are looking at this from creativity and productivity standpoint as well. The whole microdosing has been a massive thing. I also mentioned Amanita muscaria, like you don't need to have a trip, you can have a lower amount and it will have a very different effect. So there might be like progressively different effects to different dosages as well. And there might be other compounds also involved. Like there is, interestingly, like the cultivation of these mushrooms was only recently discovered, like in, I think it's in the 70s, 80s. It used to be wild mushrooms, but now the whole cultivation, what you guys also do with the inoculating logs, it was not obvious how to grow these mushrooms. So it was like a bunch of hippies in the 70s, 80s who published like their own experiments, how they were able to cultivate this in laboratory environment. That's how it spread everywhere. It seems like these mushrooms have some kind of a symbiotic relationship with their environment that needs to be mimicked in some way. And cordyceps is a good example also that to actually produce the active compounds, you need to make the mushroom fight for its life a little bit, like then it actually does produce the active compounds. So you have to like somehow simulate or emulate original habitat to, to produce the best possible results, right? Yeah, I, I would love to say that it's easy to grow mushrooms, but it's not. And I think it's been a serious journey for our company. A lot of people's stress levels and long nights, and but it's a very interesting thing to do. I think it's very satisfying work and it's a nice, I'm not fixing cars or something. It's just, a, it's, a, it's an organic living organism that's growing just 50 meters that way from my office. And it's interesting to check in on it and have that connection somehow. The more and more that we learn, the more, like you said, the, the more and more we can change those growing environments and we can modify that. And we learn how that mushroom is responding to certain things and we can update how we grow in that way to increase these different levels of compounds. Paul Stamets, I think, does a lot of good publicity in terms of communicating the benefits of this intelligence of the mycelial network. Like how reliant are living ecosystems are on the mushroom mycelial networks that are underground. So the biggest species on earth are actually mushrooms that have... Yeah, honey mushrooms. Honey mushrooms are like several miles. And then you have this whole communication that they have of nutrient delivery and so on, that where they form symbiotic relationship with trees to help the trees access resources that they don't immediately have available. And then there is the whole, I would say, the nature and environment protecting capability of detoxing. So you can use this as construction material, like mycelium is a pretty good construction material as well, but you can use it also to clean waste. Let's say you have a mine that left toxic spillover in the nature. Like, How do you clean that up? You can't like just use detergents, right? So you actually have to do something. And mycelium might be the way to extract all that toxicity out of the earth. And so mushrooms have so much potential as the ultimate chemists of the forest to, to help us heal, clean the environment. And also when modified, they can produce the drugs and compounds that are potentially 
when produced now in other methods like more polluting to the environment or destroying the environment. So you can actually produce some compounds in a more efficient manner by using mushrooms and their intelligence for it. Do you have a theme for the next year's, or, yeah, the biohacking summit? Yeah, for the 10 year anniversary, we decided to go to the roots, connecting nature, science and technology. So that's the way how we have defined biohacking for a long time is that biohacking is about using nature technology and science to optimize your health and performance. And it's that natural understanding, but that was like intuitively 10 years ago, how we defined it. Yeah. And now we realize how important it is because technology and science is often separate. Like we have conferences and events that are very science and tech and anything nature is a bit like unbelievable. And then you have the people who are super nature connected, holistic hippies, and they're almost anti-science and anti-technology sometimes in their mindsets. They walk barefoot and all that. But I think we need both. And connecting nature, science, and technology is what bikers do. Like they use thousands of years old traditions, like from food and diets, for example. So they follow the Mediterranean diet or what's going on in India and Japan and Brussels and all that. They study those. What is the healthiest diet? Then they combine that with the modern science and technology. Okay, can we modify some compound like turmeric to make it more bioavailable, and then they test themselves with. So it's a very scientific methodological approach to figure out what works, what doesn't. If you are skeptical about reishi, measure your deep sleep. Yep. So in a sense, like it's connecting those both. And the way I see it is in modern times, in industrial times, we have used science and technology to extract resources from nature with the expense of almost destroying our planet and our living conditions and ecosystems, and we are in trouble, basically. Like we have microplastics everywhere in the food chain, the oceans are polluted. We we have a huge problem. How do we get out of it? Not by eliminating all the tech and science, but actually by using tech and science to help nature heal. So now it's time for using technology to bring back the healthy ecosystems. And that's the only way forward, I see. And it's also the same for health and medical care. It's been very methodological. What is the molecule? What is the one marker? What is the targeted drug thing in a certain receptor? And now we start to realize that you need to manage stress. You need to eat whole foods. You need to take the bacterial environment into account, the microbiome. Suddenly we realize that health is wealth. And to maintain that wealth, you have to actually maintain a stable, healthy ecosystem inside and outside of you. And it comes from nature. So many companies have tried to create like some kind of meal replacement that is just molecules, almost like space food that is like just essential things for the human body. But that's where my skepticism comes into play. Do we really understand the tens of thousands of compounds you're getting in when you drink coffee or chaga tea? Like we might know one thing, like curcumin, turmeric is not curcumin, right? So there's the other compounds. And why are they there? What are they doing? What are they supporting? Why do these plants, mushrooms, why do they go through the effort of producing something complex? Yeah. Like psilocybin in a mushroom. Like why is it there? What is its function? It's an energy intensive process of producing something so complex. So why does it do it? And that's the mystery that I believe that with artificial intelligence and new technology, we might be able to unravel. We can find new targets, new metabolic pathways and all of that, but like to like somehow reduce human health, the complexity of our natural ecosystems into like single targeted solutions. Those can be super powerful and they are and have been utilized. If you have a bacterial infection, get penicillin, right? But, but then the question is, 
if you really want to maintain good health and longevity, which is very interesting and I want to touch that still, you really have to acknowledge that there are things that we don't fully understand. Yeah, definitely. I think I feel exactly the same philosophy as you do about this point. I'm not in the pharmaceutical industry, I'm in the nutraceutical industry. There was a very interesting, for the first time, I've been in this industry for six years, and for the first time ever, there's our biggest expo for the ingredients, nutraceutical ingredients, is an expo called Vita Foods out of Geneva. And it's huge. It's where KSM 66, it's all the really high-end ingredients that have a lot of clinical trials around them, are displaying new clinical trials and talking about them, a lot of great presentations. And for the first time ever, the day before this expo, there was a kind of a VIP invite-only session where top EU bureaucrats in the healthcare system wanted to know from brands and different wearables and biohacking wearables, how we could improve and lower the cost of our healthcare system. And so we had a one-day session where basically I participated with many other people discussing the, the benefits of our products and what are the standardization, what's the quality rate measurements, what do the clinicals look like, how can we stop putting people in hospitals? If I treat somebody with our products, for instance, with Lion's Mane, like we do in Spain, we're treating people with dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, they're getting better. And them taking that 20 years before would still be at 10 times less cost to the single-payer healthcare system of Spain, which is basically the Spanish government, than waiting until they have these problems and then throwing a bunch of pharmaceuticals and huge expensive hospitals at these people. People are waking up to this right now. And I just did an interview with Nutri Ingredients where we talked about the same thing. And I think, it's, I think our industry is going to look a lot different in 10 years because I think a lot more people like you and I are starting to get more power and control in this place, thinking about what are ways we can reduce the cost and improve people's living, that they're not getting sick that they're not having to go to get to the hospital, this kind of thing. Yeah, and we also have like now the diagnostic tools to get the biomarkers like at yeah. lower cost. There's algorithms and we like the whole understanding of genetics and metabolic pathways and everything has gone so much further. Like even understanding like proteins, like we didn't like fully understand. It's like things are changing rapidly. And the pharmaceutical industry is also very interested in it. Often they have a second arm, which is on the nutraceutical side, like developing these products. So it's... From their standpoint, where the money is, that's where the money is going to flow. But of course, for now, it's been like that you have this huge healthcare system, which is not the healthcare system, it's a sick care system. And now what we are talking about is the true healthcare system. The preventive side is the true healthcare system. And it has had less priority and all that because it's unproven. But now we have like diagnostic and heuristic methods to take massive data sets and we can predict the future. We can already predict lifestyle, dietary etc. factors that like on a population level might extend or shorten health span. Longevity is another thing. Can you live longer? Can you extend lifespan? What are the key factors? Maybe calorie restriction, maybe exercise, all of that, enough sleep, stress management, whatever in blue zones. But then extending healthy years in your life, if 13% of people are spending on average of their whole lifetime in a crippled suboptimal state, basically like with degenerative diseases, like if you can reduce that 13% by even 1% or 2%, can have a massive impact on the cost on healthcare system, which is like collapsing under this. I totally see the same way that this is the future. And I see that nature can teach us a lot if we study and listen to it. And mushrooms, they are genetically speaking quite close to us, right? So like they do produce compounds that we have receptors for in our bodies. So that's why these things work, right? Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, mushrooms are more closely related to humans than plants are. But I think even more interesting than that, mushrooms are more closely related to humans than they are to plants. So I think in the source of bioactive uh, ingredients, mushrooms are very potent. And 
we've talked about what six mushroom species we're talking about millions times more than plant species so from a source of bioactive material i think it's really high we've just scratched the surface and i know some really exciting companies now in europe that are looking at genome bases and testing new fungal species for different compounds and i think it gets a breath of pharmacopoeia the forest is and i think these fungi are going to be providing a lot of great solutions but i think we have to resist this I think longevity is great. And as we're living longer, the healthcare system is also rising as well. So I think that from a personal perspective, I don't know how long that's going to take for a bunch of bureaucrats to change how we do this actually true into a healthcare system. But just as managing a company, I have 30 employees. What can I do, right? What can I do to help my employees have less stress, less sick days, higher quality of living, higher standard of life? What are the things that I could do? And I think some of the stuff that you guys are coming up with at the Biohacker Summit, you were showing me earlier, it looks pretty fantastic. And I think a lot of companies, anyone who's listening to this has a company or is in charge of HR in any sense. There's a lot that we could do just as a private sector to start to implement some of these things to help just treat our people a bit better. Yeah. One mushroom that also came to my mind, which is like unexplored and not so well understood, is which grows everywhere. Everyone is like mixing it up for reishi, but it's not reishi. It's called the red gong mushroom. The Latin name is Formitopsis pinicola. And it's actually a COX1 and COX2 inhibitor. And what, what is COX2 inhibitor is NSAIDs. So like these anti-inflammatory medications that people, huge pharmaceutical market, like consume like copious amounts. Causing yep. ulcers and all kinds of gastric issues. And there's so many issues with those drugs. So I see these mushrooms could like potentially have like similar anti-inflammatory effects without the consequences on like harsh consequences. Totally. We're right now doing a trial on chaga because it's also helping moderate your blood sugar, right? How much, how many pharmaceutical diabetes pills do we take? I mean, and blood sugar moderation from chaga is a very research piece. We have to just prove that and we have to do our own clinicals and we have to show to customers that, hey, you have type one, type two, taking chaga is not only helping you longevity with antioxidants, but actually it's just helping moderate your blood sugar. Which I think that's a huge thing that, you know, even if you don't have diabetes, you should be paying attention to. One of the top ones that I've seen for blood sugar regulation is Agaricus blase from South America. And I use like something like berberine all the time. If I take some rice, I fall asleep, like I'm gone. I go and have a nap. If I have some berberine or if I have some Agaricus blase, like I'm fine. Like I don't get a crash. So... For me, subjectively speaking, it works. Now we just need the evidence, just like for berberine, that it might be a superior alternative to taking some like diabetic blood sugar regulation drug. But having said that, I also believe that pharmaceutical industry will discover ways to optimize this. Just like berberine, there's a better version of that. It's called dehydroberberine. So you can modify these molecules, so like downstream or upstream metabolites that might actually be even more effective than the original ones that we find from these natural sources. So you can like get like a 2.0 version when you combine science. So I don't like completely see like a pharmaceutical experimentation and the fact that they like to modify and patent stuff like as an inherently bad thing. But I'm very skeptical with psychedelic mushrooms that if you take the trip out of the experience that it's the same like therapeutic potential yeah because it seems to be like that and it's the same with if you take something like mushrooms and you just extract the psilocybin and you don't get like the body load like the kind of intoxication or the same with we spoke about peyote or san pedro if you take like just the mescaline out like it's going to be very different from having the plant with hundreds or thousands of bombas we don't know what they do which seem to have like very different effect 
and and in nature there's a lot of examples of like where actually like a full spectrum thing might be a better more stable source than like just the extracted single molecule that you're consuming and yeah even though we do standardize and we extract and we figure out like this is it there might be like all that interaction that happens with all these molecules that produce the end result Two of the largest publicly traded psychedelic companies have contacted me asking if we could standardize philosophy as a compound, but in a natural product. So just like we do a beta glucan, we can bring that from some batches are 14%, some batches are 17%. We can just tighten, tighten, tighten those quality requirements and how we grow it. We can do the same with psychedelic mushrooms. So that's actually why they're not using it. It's not because just isolating that philosophy compound is better. It's actually worse and they know it. They just don't have a supplier who has the technological know-how to do that work. So I think it's something, I think in the future, you'll see that more and more. I think you'll start to see really legitimate, hopefully it's our company, but I think somebody out there will do it properly. But anyway, like just to summarize from the commercial side, it's important to check your sources that you get good material. It's lab tested, actually standardized for the compounds that you seek. It's not loaded with heavy metals or sawdust or whatever, because there's so much counterfeit stuff happening and just cost savings that happen in supplement industry, one of the biggest industries and full of all kinds of scammy things, it's important that you're getting the real deal and you get what you pay for, right? And not getting any detrimental effects from this compound. So standardization, laboratory testing, all of that is super duper important. Having said that, a lot of mushroom products, they do come from China. Like not everything coming from China is inherently bad. There might be like really good farms. And the fact that they grow this in logs is already more controlled environment than like collecting them from wilderness. But having said that, there's a lot of like poor quality material coming from like the cheapest areas of the world. But now we have to also look into the quality. And I believe the highest quality mushrooms, they come from the north and specifically from Finland. That's just my opinion. But I guess you guys have the lab certificates to prove that. Yeah, what's important to us is that we don't really want customers or anybody to trust us. We just provide COA data on every package or every product. So you can go in and take a look what the heavy metal levels are of that batch that you're taking. And that's something we provide all the companies that we work with as well. So I think it's really important that, yeah, we back that up because there was a study released January of this year at an Italian market. It's one of my colleagues at the International Medicinal Mushroom Society. And to be honest, our society is 90% Chinese right? It's basically just a few of us who are not from China. And he produced this report and it was called, let's open Pandora's box. It was about the quality issues in mushrooms uh, in the European Union. And he took, what is it? 18 of the top selling medicinal mushroom products on Italian Amazon, bought them, tested them for heavy metals, tested them for beta-glucan levels, tested them and also DNA. And to me, the most damning thing was only four of those products were the correct DNA of what they said it was. So a product said it's shiitake, it didn't even have any shiitake in it. It's just some powder. And out of those products that they tested for DNA, I think three, they didn't even know what it was. It's just some random powder. So I think the market, it's booming so big that always regulation is going to take time to catch up. And unfortunately, a lot of the European Union regulation is not checking everything that's coming in from China. These are European companies buying their ingredients from China and it's, you just don't know. And they don't know. These are two, three guys that just started a company. They're not doing quality tests every batch that they're bringing in. So it just becomes, it's a big reason why I think that our, our companies take it off is that we're just so transparent and honest about all that stuff. So I think it's something that'd be definitely worrisome. But I think with any big boom, you're going to have a bunch of companies get started and trying out. Really the best ones will stay. So you're going to see a huge amount of boom and some will leave, but the ones that are consistent and able to continually deliver high quality and they'll, they'll stick around. So for sure. And that's what we want to promote. If anyone is buying any mushroom products, we only want to promote the reputable 
high quality ones. And luckily enough, also like you are not just like selling your own products, but you're also supplying raw materials for other companies to white label and using their own products. So there's a lot of good companies that have quality ingredients coming from your lab as well. Yeah. We have fantastic kombucha companies we work with here in Finland, beer companies we work with, whiskey companies. It's just all across the whole gambit. That's also another thing like where mushrooms can be used is like more widely on food products. Yeah. Hopefully the novel food regulations like don't get on the way of like innovation on using these things. I use chaga mushrooms, like one of the recipes, like I love risottos. I love rice. <laughs> I guess I mentioned that like uh, uh, occasionally, like I'd, I'm mostly keto, but when I do want carbs, I like a really nice mushroom risotto. And I use in the stock as the base, I use chaga mushroom tea. So it is like dark risotto with like it, it just has all all the goodies and i wish something like that could be sold like in the supermarket unfortunately like even putting chaga into coffee is like somehow almost like you can sell those separate you can sell other tea coffee but even you put them together it's a novel food like what what's going on <laughs> that's europe right europe yeah right? yeah it's only it's only approved for food supplement use chaga is so you can't use it from food but I think that Finland might be the only country following that to that level of intensity. Yeah. But anyway, hope like regulation catches up as well with the innovation and the studies coming out and safety profiles and testing and everything. And I thank you very much for this excellent, insightful interview. And yeah, just share if there's anything worth sharing if people want to learn more information about. Yeah. I think last thing I'd like to say is just, Tamo, I would like to offer you, we have a, we've made this art exhibit that we'd like to offer for your next summit. It's a mushroom coffin. So it's actually a coffin made out of mycelium. And there's little turkey tails popping up because I think from the earth we are and to the earth we shall return. And so it's a beautiful sim. Yeah. So I think if, if you want to have it at the summit, it's yours. Yeah. We always create art and definitely mushrooms are going to be part of it in our Helsinki summit. So I would love to have coffin there. Great. Because it's about longevity. Biohacking is a lot about that. And I couldn't think of any better installation than that. So that it's a gift for you for all the hard work you do. Appreciate it. So yeah, if people want to come to Biker Summit, check bikersummit.com. Eric has promised to be in every event we do. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually going to hold true, but he's definitely been for the last five years, big fan of what we do. I'm a big fan of what he does. So check out their products, come to the summit. Gapa is a hard thing to pronounce, right? So it's K-A-A-P-A, mushrooms. That's what you want to Google for. Kiitos, Teemo. Pleasure talking with you. Appreciate it, man. Be well. Stay mycelium. <laughs>